Hello, everybody. You know, it's really hard to believe, but this week marks the one-year anniversary of How Leaders Lead with me, David Novak. So I thought, you know, now would be a, a great time to introduce our new insight series, where I share with you my top insights and lessons that I've learned from talking to the best leaders in the world. When we launched How Leaders Lead a year ago, I set out to bring you candid conversations with the world's top leaders so that you could learn about their unique style of leadership and how they get such incredibly good things done. Now, over the course of the year, people were listening to my podcast and they started asking me, they said, David, you know, what are you learning from all these people you're interviewing? What are your key takeaways from the conversation? Well, that's what this series is all about. So let's get to work and let's start this insight series by focusing on avid learning. What stood out to me among the leaders that I talked to is that they've all demonstrated a real commitment to continuous learning throughout their careers. They all learn by doing. They all ask a lot of questions and then they listen closely for real insights. And then at some stage in their career, each of them has learned from failure. They're what I call avid learners. Now to me, being an avid learner is a big part of what it takes to be a great leader. It shows you that they have the humility to realize that they don't know everything, but they also have the determination and the sense of urgency to go out and find the answers and get the knowledge that will move their business or move their team ahead. And as the late legendary coach of the UCLA basketball team, John Wooden once told me, he said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And I just love that. Now, as I like to say, every leader has their own style. And this first group of leaders that we're going to hear from has taken a hands-on approach to learning. They're doers. They set out to learn more by jumping headfirst into new industries, new roles, and even entrepreneurship. With this mentality and a style of learning by doing, they have found incredible success. Tony Hsu, the founder and CEO of DoorDash, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. How did you go about the business of learning how to deliver food, and, and what did that teach you as a leader? Well, I didn't know much about delivering food <laughs> when we started the company. Um, but, you know, one of the things I've always believed uh, in, in, frankly, anything, business uh, or, or, or other walks of life is you have to be able to understand things at the lowest level of detail. And there's no way to do that uh, if you don't do every job in that uh, world. And, and so my co-founders and I really learned about all things logistics and all things delivery uh, by doing the deliveries. You know, early on, uh, actually for the first year and a half, we did every single delivery. And you know, while while classmates of mine were grad were were uh, were moving on from you know grad school and you know taking uh, great vacations, I was schlepping hummus for my Honda. <laughs> and you're and great so, at alliteration too. Hummus and, from my Honda. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so that's when, when I really got to understand, you know, how this business works and how, you know, a, a delivery is really composed of many different steps. And, and it's the ability to get each step right. And the sequencing of each step 
um, and, and make it really more of a logistics and math problem that you can then um, apply some of the uh, you know things that I studied, whether it's machine learning um, uh, or, or just uh, other applied math uh, techniques, so that you can actually standardize it, make it consistent, and deliver high quality. And I just love this story. Kendra Scott's plan was to go to college. Well, that was her parents' plan, at least. But life happens, and out of it came the idea for her to start a hat box brand. Now, it was her first experience in business when she was all of 19 years old. Tell me about your first experience, the hat box uh, uh, brand. Tell me about that. Everyone loves to talk about the hat box. So I love it too. You know, well, why do they love to talk about it? Cause you know, I think it's important to talk about the failures that people have. I think it was the greatest education um, that I could have ever gotten in retail. I started that business when I was 19 years old. And that was not the plan. The plan for me clearly with my parents was to go to college and get a good education. And when I said that I was gonna take some time off to pursue opening a hat store, my parents at first were like, okay, but surprisingly uh, supported me during that decision. My stepfather was battling brain cancer and I had met so many men and women that were going through chemotherapy, losing their hair, and it inspired me because there weren't a lot of great headwear options that were comfortable and still made people feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it just inspired me to want to try to do something. And so that's how the hat company got started. And I had every intention, honestly, of going back to school someday. Um, I really did believe it was a break. Uh, but the hat box, it was five years. I ran this little store and I realized I couldn't just do hats for people undergoing chemotherapy. I made hats for everybody. I mean, you needed a wedding hat, Kentucky Derby, jester hat, top hat, fedora. I mean, I had it. And I had this big vision, David. I was going to open hat stores across the country. Everyone was going to wear hats again, like it was 1940. Um, that did not happen. No one wears, I mean, people do wear hats, but not like 1940. And unfortunately, I, after five years of trying to make this little store work, I worked seven days a week, open to close. I couldn't do it. Uh, I was buying other designers' hats. I was getting basically a keystone, which 50% margin, uh, with overhead and everything else. It just, you couldn't make the numbers work. But I look at that, and, and when I had to close that store, and my stepfather passed away right before that happened, I just felt like in that moment that I was the biggest failure. I had let him down. I'd let my family down because I didn't pursue my college education. Um, I, you know, I, all of those things going through me and I realized, you know, when I started Kendra Scott, that that store taught me retail 101 better than any college education could have given me. I understood margin. I understood overhead. I understood what it felt like to make payroll. Uh, I understood how to handle a float, <laughs> um, um, right? Like there were so many things I learned that you couldn't read in a textbook uh, that could have ever got me to that place. And I met this guest a few years ago. And I have to tell you, I just loved how Lindsay Johnson went about creating wheezy towels when she couldn't find a towel that absorbed as well as she and her friend Liz thought it ought to absorb. So she was going to create a business around solving that problem. Now, Lindsay wasn't born a towel expert. 
She didn't come from a towel maker family, and she didn't get an advanced degree in how to make towels. No, she grabbed some empty suitcases and flew to Germany to learn firsthand how things are done in the world of towels. So you get united behind this idea of solving this problem in, in the towel category. How did you two go about building your know-how on towels? Um, it was a long process. So the first thing we did was just kind of from a consumer standpoint, said, hey, I'm a consumer. What was it about the towels that Liz didn't like? And what does she wish that they were like? And I went through that same process. So, you know, ordering towels from truly dozens of competitors out there and saying, okay, is there a towel out there that kind of fulfills the promise of being super absorbent, super soft, you know, lightweight, but not, but substantial enough that it still felt luxurious, durable enough that it lasted after, you know, dozens of washes, not falling apart after two washes, um, kept the soft feel throughout that time. And so we ordered all these towels, went through the process and came to say, okay, this towel really, you know, fulfills the problem of, you know, softness. It has a great hand feel, but it's not super absorbent. This towel over here is absorbent, but it's not soft or whatever it was. Um, and once we had sort of narrowed down what we thought, I, I actually took my uh, business school Christmas break or winter break rather, and went to um, a, a textile show in Frankfurt, Germany, where there were 80,000 plus vendors um, uh, from all over the world. And I came with two huge suitcases of all the towels that I had tried and I had labeled what I liked, what I didn't like, um, and basically went vendor to vendor saying, here's what I want you to make for me. Can you make this? Um, and through those conversations over the course of, I guess I was there for three days, um, learned an immense amount. One of my favorite people in the world is Warren Buffett. And obviously, Warren Buffett is one of the best investors in the world. And he only invests in companies where he believes in the CEO's leadership. So when I asked Evan Spiegel, founder and CEO of Snap, why someone should invest in him, I found his answer to be so telling and so right on. You know, the, the best investors I know, Evan, you know, the, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the Ken Langones, the, the Alan Breeds, they, they, they all invest in, in a company only if they believe in the CEO's leadership. You know, why should someone invest in you? I, I mean, I, I think the most important uh, thing I've learned as a leader is really just that like continuous curiosity. Um, and this feeling that I like I've barely scratched the surface in terms of what I know um, and what I'm going to be able to learn. And so I think keeping that sort of just growth mindset to me has been the most valuable asset as a leader. Um, and it's been the most fun part of the job, because if every single day you're learning something new and growing and, you know, arguably even becoming a new person. I mean, I feel like every couple of months I'm like a new person in terms of the, the skills that I've acquired and the ways that I've had to, to grow. And so I, I think for me, um, you know, the investment thesis uh, is always about people's ability to grow. Uh, and that's why I think um, investing in SNAP <laughs> would, would uh, be a good investment. Wow, Tony, Kendra, Lindsay, and Evan, those are some great stories. I'll never stop being impressed by leaders who are willing to just get in there and do the work and get their hands dirty. You know, Tony is a detailed guy a rational thinker who's not above getting behind the wheel of the car to become a dasher himself. Now, Kendra, she works more off instinct and emotional intelligence, but learned the nuts and bolts of Retail 101 by jumping in. And Lindsay, well, she's what I call a know-how seeker. 
She did her homework and flew with a bunch of empty suitcases to a trade show in Germany to bring back samples that would work and really change the market. And Evan, well, obviously, he's brilliant. He's a breakthrough thinker, and he's reimagining and reinventing the camera. But let me tell you something. At his core, he appreciates learning and doing. Well, now I want to hone in on a group of leaders who are not afraid to ask questions of people who they think just might know a little bit more than they do. To me, that shows incredible strength of character. By realizing that they don't have all the answers, these folks demonstrate a level of humility that just blows me away. Now, I know you probably think that all these big-time people think they do know it all, but in my experience, it's the exact opposite. Some of the best leaders become successful because they don't know it all, then go one step further, they go find out how. Now, when Niran Chaudhary took over as CEO of Panera, he really needed to get up to speed fast. There was a lot of pressure on the core business and a lot to learn. But instead of staying in his office buried in reports and spreadsheets, he hit the road to find out what's really happening with his customers and with his team members. Aaron, so you, you've got this you know, pressure on the core business and you come in. How'd you get up to speed on the business? Which is, as you just mentioned, it's very complex. You've got delivery, online, e-commerce, huge supply chain. You've got company and franchise stores. And you even have baking, 24-hour baking in the store. So this is a very complex business. How did you go to school on what needed to be done? So I think um, I was, you know, at times I've, it felt overwhelming, I have to be honest. Uh, uh, you know, I had this big sense of responsibility and accountability that this team deserves to win, this brand deserves to win, and we're not winning. And I just felt that, you know, I was just taking too long, even though I had just sort of joined the company and I needed to get up to speed fast. So I think some core principles. One, I think whenever I'm feeling sort of overwhelmed, I say, okay, let me focus on what I have control over and not on what's happening to me. That's the first thing. Secondly is, let me really have the curiosity to learn and to really listen because the problems are out there, but even the solutions are out there. If you go to the 140,000 associates and the franchise partners we have, they know what needs to be done. One just has to listen and join the dots. So this kind of curiosity to learn. At the same time, I think having the audacity to dream, reminding everybody that let's not get bogged down by the current reality. Let's kind of dream of what this might look like when we get to the other side. And then finally, having the courage to act, like recognizing that what worked in the past may not work now. So one may have to make very tough, courageous decisions on the team, on the structure, on the capability, on the culture, indeed drive a transformation so that we can uh, take the brand and the business to where it uh, needs to go. So that's what I tried to do. Now, one thing I really admire about my friend Tom Brady is just how cool he is under pressure. But when he left the New England Patriots, and he made the move to a new team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He moved into an entirely new situation, and it didn't come without its own challenges and its own anxiety that he had to deal with. And I know you'll learn a lot from his advice on how he handled it all by going in with an open mind and a learning mindset. 
You know, Tom, given what you've gone through, what advice can you give to others now on how to work through anxiety of moving into a new situation? For me, the first thing I had to do is to, to listen and to learn. And I think that's the way to approach it is not to go in here and be stubborn or this is the way I've done things. You know, you listen, you learn, and at the same time, you have to assert yourself, but in a way that others are going to trust you. And that's to be caring. You've always said, which I've always taken from you, but recognition how important that is into what other people are doing. Because this team has done great things. This team has done some really great things. And if I can bring the knowledge that I have, the experience that I have to this position, I feel like it can improve everybody. And that's the urgency that we all face. It's one thing to talk about. It's another to do it. And I think any leader, any CEO of any business, anyone in a leadership position, it's all going to be results based. Right. And you're going to, you know, in sports, the, you know, there's a scoreboard. So you get to look up at the end of every week and figure out whether you did good or bad. Yeah, I know. I remember looking at those same store sales every day too, you know, the same way <laughs> you do. You've been an acknowledged leader on every team you've ever been on really. And so I know a lot's expected of you, but how do you go about getting ready to give the motivational speech? Because you got to be called on to do that every now and then. Yeah, you do. And I think that's, you know, guys are looking for that because, you know, a lot of these guys are half my age and literally half my age. Um, <laughs> and I want to help them be the best they could be. And I think that's part of why I still play is um, I ha- there's a lot of gratification I get from seeing other people do well. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when, when I've had so many other people in my life help me do well, I learn from them. And they have years of experience. And they give me wisdom and then I've got to apply that wisdom to people in my life. And that's how, that's how you do make the world, uh, you know, a better place. Because you yeah. deal with people who are, have great integrity. Um, they have great knowledge. And they give you great advice. And use that advice. And then, you know, it, it affects other people in their life. You never know who you're affecting. And, you know, I've had people say, man, that, those, that thing you said to me when we first met, that was really important. And I'm thinking in my life, wow, that was just an interaction we had. And to them, it meant a lot more than that. I think that's still a very cool thing for me. Now, if you want to learn from asking, take this advice from my friend, Indra Nui, the former chairwoman of PepsiCo. She believes in the give and the take that mentoring provides and that women and men should mentor each other if they truly want to get a balanced perspective and learn how to grow themselves and their business. Do you challenge everyone to get a female mentor? Yeah. Explain that. I mean, well, you know, it's interesting. When uh, I left PepsiCo, people kept saying, why didn't you replace yourself with a woman CEO? Um, Why don't they ask the men that? Why haven't you replaced yourself with a woman CEO? So I think it's a question of all of us have to uh, pull each other up. Women should not be mentoring just women. Men should not be mentoring just men. It should be all over the place. Men should mentor women. Women should be mentoring men because we all learn from each other. So I always tell people, if you go and get a female mentor, you'll just get a feel for the other side, you know, the the EQ more than just the IQ. You'll understand business from the point of view of somebody quite different. Uh, Make sure you understand everybody's point of view. And uh, that's why I think that it always helps to have male mentors, but it also helps to have female mentors because they give you just a slightly different perspective. 
And now I want to go to Frank Blake, the former chairman and CEO of Home Depot. Well, when he took over as CEO of the Home Depot, it wasn't a job that he was really looking for, and he didn't have a deep understanding yet of the retail business. But Frank shows the power of some good old-fashioned listening and what it can do for one's career path, learning curve, and to grow a business. Frank, it's interesting, you know, you get this job you really weren't looking for, and you don't have a deep understanding yet of retail from your perspective, you know, uh, how'd you get started? Uh, So the good news is, uh, for me, and maybe it was the shock of it, and the unlikeliness of it, uh, I, I felt like my eight years of CEO, as CEO of Home Depot, was a crash course in leadership, particularly the first year. I was fortunate to have worked for some amazing leaders, uh, Jack Welch on the business side. I worked for a number of political leaders who I learned a lot from, and I read a lot. I looked at examples of leadership. I became a real student of leadership, and it wasn't anything that I had really focused on before in my life. I think, and I think I'm, you know, this is one of the things that interests me about you. And I feel like I'm proof that leadership can be learned. It's, I, uh, I can't describe, I mean, a lawyer's training and a lawyer's background, stepping into a retail business where there are over 350,000 people at the time. Now there are over 400,000 people. Uh, it was something I had to learn. I had to learn. I had to learn quickly, and um, I mean, we can go through all the different things I learned. But that experience just gives me absolute confidence that leadership concepts can be learned, and when they are put into place, they make a difference. As I understand it, you you actually went to your son as well, who was working at Home Depot, to get some uh, get some insight. What what he offer you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's so. Um, my son at the time was a store manager at Home Depot. He, he served in Iraq and Home Depot had a program where returning veterans could come back and work in the stores. And he had started as assistant store manager and then moved around at that time, a store manager. Um, and so I called him and I said, Hey, I'm going to be the new CEO of Home Depot. And he laughed and he thought I was joking. I said, no, 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 I'm going to be the CEO. And I said, I need some advice. When I, and you know this, David, you have these communication vehicles set up with the retail. And in Home Depot, we have break rooms and the break rooms have a TV that the company sends in its message. And I had to go on TV to deliver a message to 350,000 associates. And I said to my son, what should I say? First off, again, he laughed. He said, good luck, Dad. And I said, no, no, seriously, <laughs> some advice. What should I be talking about? And he said, well, I can tell you how I start all my weekly store meetings. And I said, great, what do you do? And he said, I read from uh, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank's book, Built from Scratch, which is a great, one of the great entrepreneurial stories. Home Depot is just one of the great entrepreneurial stories. I read from that book. And uh, that's how I start every meeting. And I go, God, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So I flipped through the book to find something that I thought would be relevant to talk about. And 
Bernie and Arthur talk a lot about the inverted pyramid, where the CEO is on the bottom of the pyramid and the customer and frontline associates are at the top. I thought that's perfect. That's the message I want to hit. And that was my first conversation with 350,000 associates. And for eight years, I tried to figure out what does that actually mean to lead an organization where you put yourself as the CEO at the bottom. Now, make no mistake about it. To me, one of the absolute best ways to be an avid learner is to ask questions. And the leaders you just heard from did that and more. Now, Niren was thrown into a situation where he had to listen to others for advice if he was ever going to have a shot of success. And to his credit, he went to the people that were closest to the customers. He went out in the field and he learned how to grow the business. And it's pretty well documented that Tom's road to becoming the NFL's greatest of all time didn't come without its challenges. But even Tom had to work his way through the challenging situation of starting a new job and entering a new work environment just like all us normal people do. Indra's advice on finding a mentor that's a different gender than you or has a different background than yourself, I think that can be a game changer for any person in any industry. And I hope you could tell just how much I love Frank's story. He's such a sponge of information from every source he could tap into, even his son. Now I want to talk about a four-letter word that I know everyone tries to avoid. It's the word fail. And when you hear these next stories from Jack Nicholas, Jamie Dimon, and Marvin Ellison, you're going to realize that more times than not, there's always some silver lining if you look at the lessons failures can teach you. In fact, without facing challenges in our lives, even failing, how would we learn? How good would we be? There's no doubt in my mind that the conversations that we're having around failure in companies today and the encouragement of it within corporate cultures is a great thing. Well, I can't tell you how much I admire Jack Nicklaus. He won more major golf titles than anyone in the history of the sport. And even as good as he was, he did lose a few times. And I love this story about the coaching that he gave young Rory McIlroy to learn from the tough experience he had when he really bombed on the last day of the Masters. Jack realizes the best thing you can do is learn from the experience and keep going. You know, as good as you are, Jack, you did lose a few times, you know? Uh, we all lose a few times. What, what's the best way to handle that that loss or in business or any adversity? What have you learned about that? Well, you know, I'll give you a little story. I, I, Roy McElroy came to me when he was about 19 years old. And he was out here playing at the Honda tournament. And somebody said, why don't you call Jack and go over and sit down and have lunch with him? And uh, maybe he, was, he might have been 20 at the time, 19 or 20. And he, he said, he said, ask Jack questions. And so Roy came over and we sat down. And he hadn't won in about a year. And he says, I just can't finish. I, have, I really have a hard time finishing. He says, I get, I get so uptight. And I get so worked up with it. I said, I can't, I can't, get, I can't get myself finished. And I said, well, Roy, I says, you got to understand who you are and what your ability is, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses. And you've got to understand that, you know, the other fellows out there are having the same problems you are. And patience is the biggest virtue you can have. And, you know, you need to go out and, 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 and you know, and, and, and go out and play and just be patient with what you're doing. And, you know, if, if you're being patient, as good a player as you are, 
and all of a sudden you're going to knock in a putt that's 10 or 12 feet, and then you might knock another 15 foot. All of a sudden you shoot that 32 or 3 the last time, and you're going to win the golf tournament. And But if you're going out and pressing yourself and pressing and pressing, I think that you sometimes play beyond what your real ability is at that time. So about three weeks later, Roy went to uh, uh, Charlotte, and uh, uh, he shot 63 the last round. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I dropped him a note, and I said, I said, well, that was a pretty good round. I says, I says, I told you to have patience, but that was ridiculous. <laughs> so, so anyway, he, he did that. And then he came back. And about a year later, he, I think probably the next year, he was leading the Masters. And he shot like 80 the last round. Mm-hmm. And I saw him a couple of weeks after that. And uh, I, I went to him. I said, Rory, I said, okay. I says, now you lost a tournament. Do you know why you lost it? Did you learn anything? He says, I think so. He says, I think I learned why I lost and why I did. I says, well, put that in your bonnet and think about it and think how not to put yourself in that position. And so that, then two or, two or three weeks later, he went to the U.S. Open and won by, what, eight or nine shots right. in, in Washington. So then I, wrote, then I dropped him a note right after that. I said, congratulations. That was pretty good there. That's a pretty good effort. I said, you said you learned something from Augusta. You obviously did. But more importantly, did you learn something from what you, what you did at Congressional and why you won? So in other words, I think you have to learn why you lose. You have to learn why you win. You have to learn how to do both. And I think business is exactly the same thing. You know, everybody makes mistakes as they're growing up and trying to learn to grow in business. And you, and, and you should learn from those mistakes. But you also, when you do something well, you learn from that too. So Rory learned quite well. He's, a, he's obviously a very accomplished and good player. I think one of the reasons why I love doing my podcast is I love learning from great leaders. And I love learning by watching Jamie Dimon in action when I was on the J.P. Morgan Chase board. He is such a phenomenal leader. And we talked about how there's so much to learn from being in the ring, especially in the fast-paced, high-risk world of banking and finance. Now, in a backhanded kind of way, he believes that his team members missed the experience of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Well, when they missed it, they missed out on a great opportunity to learn because those are the times when you learn the most. I remember just recently, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody said, you know, all these young finance people, business people come up, they don't really know what it's like to operate in a tough environment. We had such a, a run after 2009. Well, we're learning now, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's worse than that, David, because we have unbelievably good people. Yeah. But a lot of people who get these jobs, getting jobs at an already really well-run company, you learn a lot more at a turnaround. So you learned a lot more running Yum! Brands when it was new. Taco Bell was underperforming. Pizza Hut was underperforming. You know, you're having problems left and right. You own too many stores. Profit margins are too low. You had to renegotiate your supply. You learn more doing that than when you have a successor takes over the job that's already well run. And I always worry about that. Like, okay, well, have you really been in the boxing ring? You You may be the heavyweight champion of the world, but you didn't have to fight 10 people to get there. <laughs> you just kind of inherited it. And so a lot of these folks, they're learning this way. They've never had a tough time. Right. They've never had a, uh, they've never lost money. They've never made a bad loan. They never, right. you know, and those things hurt, you know, when you do right. them. It's always so exciting for me to see a leader who basically comes from very humble backgrounds and then climbs up the ladder and runs a huge company like Lowe's. And my question to Marvin Ellison, the CEO of Lowe's, was really quite simple. 
How do you think about failure? Let me tell you, his answer was nothing short of a lesson on life. How do you think about failure? You know, you've had some ups and downs, obviously, but, you know, when you think about your organization, you know, how, 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 do, you, how do you think about failure? Well, you know, to me, failure is something that, that you shouldn't frown upon. It's, it's one of the, the best ways to learn. Uh, and, and what I say to myself and to my team is, you know, the only way you don't fail is if you don't get out of bed in the morning, because you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have disappointments and, and you're going to have failures. The question is, what do you do about it? What did you learn from it? Uh, how will it help you to be a better leader? How will it allow you to be more effective when a similar situation you know, happens, uh, you know, in the future. And I'll tell you a real quick story. When, when I was a district uh, level leader, you know, at Target, I interviewed for a regional position. And it's one of those situations where everyone tells you the job is yours. You know, this is just a formality. And of course, I didn't get the job. So I go in, I interview. Uh, and I'm devastated that the job is actually given uh, to someone who I am mentoring. You know, so someone <laughs> who who is seeking me for, for counsel and advice actually gets the position that they didn't even apply for. And so, you know, when I go to my functional VP and I, and I ask the question, what happened? You know, he explains to me that, you know, in the process was a very influential senior vice president who simply didn't believe I was ready uh, and was the absolute reason why I didn't get the job because no one had the political clout to override his objection. And so I'm devastated by this. And of course, I'm thinking, why doesn't the guy like me? So I go through all the, the obvious thoughts in my head. But then I decided to do something different. And this is, this is learning from failure. I decided to pick up the phone, call this senior vice president, and ask him would he be willing to mentor me? Because I was, I was interested to understand through what lens was he looking at me through and what did he see that others did not see? And what could I learn from it? And from that became one of the most interesting leadership learnings of my career because I spent time with him and he was gracious enough to accept, you know, my request, although he was very surprised that I was asking. And, and from that, he taught me one critical lesson. And he said to me, well, Marvin, one of the reasons why you did not get my support for this position is because you have a history of always being the loudest voice in the room. You always try to have an answer to every question. And he said, you have to understand when to talk, when to listen, when to lead, and when to follow. And, and that was a great lesson. And, and so from his critique, uh, you know, I worked hard to improve my leadership, improve my engagement with people, understanding how to not be so dominant, you know, in meeting settings. And when the next promotional opportunity uh, came about, this guy went from my greatest detractor to my greatest promoter. And as time, as life would have it, years go, years go by, and, and he reaches out to me uh, when I'm uh, at the at the Home Depot and at JCPenney, and I'm helping him with career issues that he's dealing with, uh, you know, at, at this point in, in his life. Uh, so it's it's interesting how uh, our careers 
converge. Is 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 for me. It was a great learning. It, it was it was humbling. Uh, but I teach a lot of you know my team members and, and young managers I'm mentoring or coaching that you have to try to learn from every failure because it's oftentimes not just about you. It's about how you're perceived and it's about understanding how you can continue to get better. So that's just one of those many examples of failure that I tried to learn from. Well, it's no surprise that our biggest wins often come out of our hardest losses, as these leaders have just shown us. Jack tells us how he coached Rory McIlroy and encouraged him to learn from his failures and get better every single day. Jamie has what I call, in quotes, wisdom gained through experience. The experience that he had when he went through the financial crisis obviously tested his mettle, challenged his skills. But once he came out the other side, you know more about who you are, what you stand for, and the strength of character that you have that'll help you get through the tough times in the future. And Marvin, there's no question, he faced headwinds and challenges most of us can't fully understand. But he powered ahead with focus and determination and became the world-class leader he is today because of it. Well, I hope you're as inspired as I am from these great stories from such tremendous avid learners. And again, I really believe this is the single biggest trait that the great leaders have. Learning by doing, learning by asking, and learning from failure. If you loved what you heard from these guests and, and want to learn from the full episodes, now's the time to go back and listen through the entire conversation. This episode is obviously just the tip of the iceberg. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're enjoying our, our one-year anniversary How Leaders Lead Insight uh, series, the first one that we did. And if you enjoyed this new format, stay tuned for more episodes in our Insight series. So until next time, we hope you keep learning, stay humble, and continue to inspire others on your way to making big things happen.